Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Bernie, and I want to start off this week by talking about the worst thing Donald Trump has ever tweeted. Now, obviously, there's a lot of competition for this honor. There was the time he wished the haters and losers a happy Father's Day, or the time he urged Americans to check out Alicia Machado's non-existent sex tape. You could come up with literally dozens of contenders, but this week, I think he topped them all. Unfortunately, Isabel fell asleep early tonight, so you have to hear me read it instead. While I greatly appreciate the efforts of President Xi in China to help with North Korea, it has not worked out. At least I know China tried! In case you don't know the context, Otto Warmbier died this week. He was an American student who visited North Korea and was accused of trying to steal a banner off a wall. He was then sentenced to 15 years hard labor, but was returned to America not long ago after he was tortured until he was blind and unable to speak. He sank into a coma and died. Let's be clear here because I don't want to understate the seriousness of this. North Korea murdered an American citizen. That is a big deal and it deserves a response. And if the first thing Donald Trump did was consult with the Chinese, I'll give him credit. That was the right thing to do first. But the wrong thing to do, the worst thing he could do almost, is to direct a vague, threatening tweet at North Korea. This was from June 20th, and to my knowledge, he hasn't taken any action since. So maybe it was just empty posturing, or maybe he's setting the stage for short-sighted military action. What I do know is that our president took to Twitter to shoot off an incredibly stupid message that could theoretically affect the lives of millions of people. Did the North Korean military move to a more aggressive posture? Did the message put other Americans in North Korean custody in further danger? Did it make a devastating war in the Korean Peninsula and beyond more likely? I don't know, and chances are President Trump doesn't either. You cannot conduct foreign policy like this. It puts so many people in danger. It doesn't make President Trump look strong. It makes him look ignorant and weak. The foundation of North Korea's entire regime is anti-American and anti-Japanese propaganda. The government runs it 24-7 to convince its people they are under constant threat. And Donald Trump just handed them a ready-made piece of propaganda. Here you go. The President of the United States is threatening you. Trump has said a lot of really dumb, thoughtless, cruel, bullying, dangerous, ugly things on Twitter. But this is the absolute worst. I expect him to top it next week. It was a surprisingly quiet week in terms of the Russia investigation. Trump didn't fire Bob Mueller or Rod Rosenstein. He called it a witch hunt a few more times, but that's not news at this point. No major public hearings, no big revelations. It was almost like a vacation. You know, the vacation where you spend the entire time worrying about Republicans taking health care away from tens of millions of Americans. And yes, obviously, I'll be talking about that later in the podcast. But there was one story worth mentioning, and it's not so much about the investigation into Russia's interference in the election and the Trump campaign's possible involvement and President Trump's potential obstruction of that investigation, like asking the FBI director to stop investigating Michael Flynn and then firing him when he refused. Instead, it's about the administration's remarkable decision to continue looking like it is colluding with Russia on policy. 
Last week, the Senate passed a bill limiting the president's power to lift sanctions against Russia. And you know how polarized Congress is right now. They can't rename a post office without a party line vote. But this bill passed 98 to 2. Only lovable kooks Rand Paul and Mike Lee voted against it. So that's about as unanimous as the Senate gets these days. But the White House hasn't given up. It's now lobbying the House of Representatives to kill that provision. Trump is basically saying, I know this is an extremely popular and bipartisan effort, but I really want to be able to lift sanctions on Russia. Not not that I will lift any sanctions on Russia, and I certainly don't have any particular reason to lift sanctions. It's not like they have a P-tape or anything. I, I just want to be able to, you know, just in case. If you're under investigation for your ties to Russia, why on earth would you keep making it look like you're doing favors for Russia? It it has been just remarkable watching Trump make exactly the wrong moves when it comes to this investigation. Actively working to shut it down instead of letting it play out. Constantly undercutting his own legal case with loud public statements. And denying everything in the least credible possible way, making himself look ever more guilty in the process. Making it easier to lift sanctions against Russia does not help matters, but he just doesn't seem to care. There actually is one more bit of news about the investigation this week, but I'm going to save that one for the end of the podcast. Congress never managed to pass immigration reform when Obama was president, so he made what changes he could through executive action, the two best-known examples of which are DACA and DAPA. DACA was deferred action on childhood arrivals, and it said that we wouldn't focus immigration enforcement on people who were brought here as children. DAPA was deferred action for parents of Americans, which said we wouldn't focus on people who have children who are citizens or in the country legally. Now, DAPA never went into effect. It was blocked in the courts. But now that America elected a hateful anti-immigrant shithead president, DAPA is gone completely. The Department of Homeland Security rescinded it this week. So now, Immigration and Customs Enforcement can feel free to target mothers and fathers of American citizens for deportation. They can separate families. They can force parents to make impossible choices about whether to leave their children in the country they were born in and have always known, or take them back with them. Whenever Trump talks about who he's deporting, he always says it's all gang members and violent criminals. But this is who he's deporting. ICE has even been found detaining victims of domestic violence when they go to court. That doesn't end crime. It encourages it. If undocumented immigrants can't go to the police to report crimes or to court to testify about them, it paints a target on their backs. It makes an already vulnerable population more likely to be victimized. It's stupid and short-sighted, and heartless. Trump says his shitty immigration policies are about protecting Americans, but now he's going to deport their parents. It's almost like he only meant white Americans. Did you know there are only 1,229 days until the next presidential election? I know, it's soon. And you're worried about whether Donald Trump's campaign will have the resources it needs to re-elect the worst goddamn president you have ever seen. Well, my friends, worry no more. Because Trump's campaign, which for some reason was up and running pretty much the moment he took the oath of office, has scheduled its first fundraiser. Now, I know what you're thinking. Where could he find just the right venue to host this historic event? It has to be extremely classy. 
with all the best furnishings and fixtures, the greatest possible location, the finest foods and staff, and most importantly, it should be extremely expensive to rent, but all that money should go right into Donald Trump's pocket. Trump's 2016 campaign spent literally millions of dollars on Trump's properties. Do you remember after he started fundraising from outside sources, he jacked up the rent on his campaign offices? Well, the good news is he found the perfect spot for his first fundraiser, the Trump International Hotel right here in Washington, D.C. It's got everything he could want, but most of all, it means he's going to keep profiting off his campaign. And now he's starting earlier than ever. He has three and a half years to make as much as he wants. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that this time around, he doesn't self-fund at all. After all, why should he? He's the president and he's made it clear he's for sale. Donors are going to be lining up around the block. I said earlier Trump is heartless, but I want to give you an idea exactly how heartless he is. Actually, some other people did it for me. Here's what they said. As advocates for people living with HIV, we have dedicated our lives to combating this disease and no longer feel we can do so effectively within the confines of an advisory body to a president who simply does not care. That's from an open letter to Trump in Newsweek from six members of his own Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS. It goes on. The Trump administration has no strategy to address the ongoing HIV-AIDS epidemic, seeks zero input from experts to formulate HIV policy, and, most concerning, pushes legislation that will harm people living with HIV and halt or reverse important gains made in the fight against this disease. Honestly, I don't have anything to add to that. You can find a link to the full letter at the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. Let's take a quick trip around the federal agencies. We'll start in the most glamorous of all, housing and urban development. Donald Trump announced a brand new hire to run the New York, New Jersey operations of HUD. And let me tell you, Lynn Patton is pretty qualified. She planned Eric Trump's wedding. She planned golf tournaments for Trump. She claimed she had a law degree she didn't have. She claimed she went to Yale, which she never did. And she has exactly zero education or experience in housing. So why did she end up at the Department of Housing and Urban Development? I'll give you one guess. And a hint. Why did Ben Carson end up at the Department of Housing and Urban Development? The funny thing is, it's not like there aren't jobs in government she'd be qualified for. Every agency needs event planning. She could step into a protocol role at state. She could work at the White House. But they put her at HUD in a critical job for which she has zero relevant experience. It's just so ugly and cynical. Next, let's head to the Department of Education, where its Office of Civil Rights is charged with making sure students aren't discriminated against for a wide variety of reasons. Civil rights enforcement was stepped up during the Obama administration because that's what happens when decent people are in charge. And now, with Betsy DeVos running the show, the department has made the decision to scale back civil rights enforcement in a big way. The reasons are exactly what you'd expect. They're claiming it's for efficiency, so people will have their complaints heard more quickly. But of course, what it means is that many people will never have their complaints heard at all. Remember, we're talking about kids here. 
kids mistreated not just by other students, but by teachers and staff for being different. Civil rights enforcement is being deprioritized across the entire administration, but there is something especially pernicious about targeting children this way. Over at the State Department, uh, Rex Tillerson just told a bunch of women and minorities in a special program to find the next generation of Foreign Service officers to go fuck themselves. Congress created this program that identifies candidates, pays for training and education, gives them internships, and promises them jobs in Foreign Service in exchange for a five-year commitment. So State has already invested a, a good amount of taxpayer dollars in these candidates, and this is a competitive program, so we're talking about very qualified people. And then it tells them they aren't getting foreign service officer jobs and have a week to decide if they want a job stamping passports in a consulate somewhere. Remember, Trump and Tillerson are trying to slash state's budget. But Congress said, look, we created this program for a reason, so hire these people. And state continues to refuse to hire them. This isn't just about the next generation of top diplomats. It's about making sure our foreign service officers are more diverse. Diplomacy and diversity, two things the Trump administration hates. Finally, the Secretary of Energy doesn't believe in climate change. Let's listen in. When Scott Pruitt was on, uh, I asked him whether he believed that CO2 was the primary control knob for climate. And he said no. Uh, you've mentioned CO2 a couple of times in emissions. I was wondering, do you believe CO2 is the primary control knob for the temperature of the Earth and for, uh, for climate? No, most likely the primary control knob is the um, uh, ocean waters and the, uh, this environment that we live in. I mean, the, the, the fact is, this isn't a, uh, shouldn't be a debate about, you know, is the, is the climate changing? Is man having an effect on it? Yeah, we are. The question should be, you know, just how much and what are the policy changes that we need to make uh, to affect that? I mean, there's just this science, this idea that science is just absolutely settled. And, and if you don't believe it's settled, then you're a, somehow another a Neanderthal. That is so inappropriate from my perspective. You notice the way the question was framed with primary control knob was set up to allow climate deniers wiggle room. And Perry certainly wiggles there. But the effect, it's the same. Whether you say outright climate change is a hoax or just question how much human activity is to blame, we know what you're really up to. You don't want to regulate fossil fuels. We get it. We really do. Just admit you care more about coal and oil company profits than you do about saving the planet. It's not like you're going to shock anyone with that revelation, Rick Perry. Senate Republicans released their version of the Trump Care Bill on Thursday. How does it compare to the House version? If there's slight quote-unquote improvement from the old CBO score, which has 23 million people losing coverage, to some other number, 12, 15, 18, 10, 19, it doesn't matter. Um, we should be passing legislation in Congress that gives people more coverage um, and not um, declaring victory if we cut it down by a few million. So I don't know the answer, but um, I think the uh, President Trump would love to get us to measure this in relative terms, the House, so we can show that he's, quote unquote, made it less mean or added, quote unquote, heart to the bill. Uh, I think that's a, that's a mistake to fall into that line of thinking. 
Longtime listeners may recognize that voice. I talked to Andy Slavitt about the American Health Care Act back in early March. He used to be the acting head of the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services for President Obama, meaning he ran Medicare, Medicaid, and the ACA. The guy knows what he's talking about, so of course I wanted him to break down the bill for me. The bill in the Senate is a lot like the bill in the House. Uh, there are, uh, the, in the main, you know, if this bill passes, Medicaid as we know it today will, will be over. Um, it'll be replaced by a pretty severe system of capitated benefits that limits how much care people can get unless someone else pays the tab. Every single problem Republicans say they have with Obamacare, this bill makes them worse. It will uh, end Medicaid expansion. Uh, it will uh, end the protections that the ACA put forward in pre-existing conditions. And it will, it looks like it will also have the added, a couple added features that will raise deductibles pretty significantly by lowering the value of benefits. And it'll even do some funny things like changing um, some of the things that are even what's defined as an insurance company. So a lot to be explored. A few things can still change, but expect this to look very much like the bill that came out of the House. It's a terrible bill. Andy points out it should have zero chance of passing if these things were decided on the merits. Uh, it hurts every state. It cuts coverage from people. It drives people's costs up. It actually literally achieves none of the goals that either Trump or the Congress set out for itself. So uh, from one view, the bill has a 0% chance of passing. From another view, more of a political view, I think the bill has a greater than 50% chance of passing. And that's because I think you always would be smart to give the, the benefit of the doubt to the home team. Uh, and the home team is a majority party. The majority party has lots of levers uh, that it can use, some of them not even related to health care. As, as, as many people know, the leadership decides committee assignments. They decide who gets to sponsor bills. They help lead fundraising. And so, you know, at the end of the day, there are going to be people like Senator Dean Heller from Nevada who are going to be making a decision between their reelection prospects in a state that overwhelmingly um, finds this bill to be um, not good for them, or Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, who will view this, who, who, to whom this bill really dramatically hurts her state, versus some of the things that she gets from her boss. Uh, and her relationship with her boss. So it really is a party over people kind of decision for these folks. Mitch McConnell, who is a terrible human being, but a damn good manipulator, will do everything in his power to see this passed. Just as an example, the bill defunds Planned Parenthood. Obviously, that's a priority for Republicans, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them pull that provision just to give Susan Collin of Maine's breathing room to vote yes. And of course, there's a lot more they can do to win votes. Yeah, I think you're going to see a few things. Um, they're not necessarily in the bill today, but I think they'll make their way into the final. I think in order to get votes in West Virginia and Ohio, you'll see um, money added for opioids. I think um, in order to see, um, uh, to get uh, poorer states and states with um, more rural populations, you'll see a change in the way that the tax credits work. Um, the House proposed a, t a bill that tax credits were based on age. Um, the Senate's bill is going to make them based on income, which is how the ACA works. Um, incidentally, I think that's going to make it probably very difficult for people like Rand Paul to support this bill because 
you know, in many respects, at least in his, from his perspective, it may look too much like Obamacare. So there'll be things like that. And, you know, the next week will be dedicated to um, Leader McConnell and his staff working each of these folks one by one. So we're liable to see a lot of different deals. But that's just process. What matters here is who this bill will hurt. And the answer is millions of Americans. And it targets by far the most vulnerable among us. So Medicaid today is a system where the federal government matches the state's needs. And just to just to um, refresh everybody's memory, Medicaid is a program that takes care of kids, people with disabilities, seniors, and, uh, and low-income people. Um, the half the beneficiaries are kids. About 70% of the money goes to take care of people with disabilities and people who are in nursing homes. So, you know, these aren't, these aren't really the kind of dollars that most people think of as optional dollars. The way the program works today, uh, based upon the needs of the population, um, that's how much funding the states get. So that's how people get their medical care in these situations. Uh, what we'd be replacing this with is a bill that would move to a system that gave the states a, a per-person dollar amount, and that per-person dollar amount um, would be uh, all that the state would get. And if the state wanted to spend any more on a person's care, they would have to find another way to come up with the money. And given that for most states, Medicare is Medicaid is half of their budget, not greater, and most states are not in a position to raise revenues, this will very likely mean both cuts to services as well as cuts to eligibility, which means fewer people will actually get Medicaid services. We're not just talking about a few dollars in cuts to Medicaid. We're talking about the wholesale destruction of the program. Uh, in 2025, interestingly, by the way, Jesse, that's the year that the baby boomer population turns 80. And the reason that's important is because this is how half of the nursing home care is paid for in our country. So the year that the, the, that the baby boomer generation turns 80, there will be a dramatic cut in uh, the growth rate of how uh, much is paid into Medicaid from the federal government, which effectively means uh, that there, uh, over the life of even just a few years, there could be a, another $500 billion of Medicaid cuts on top of what the House already proposed. Now, I don't know that that'll stay in the final bill, and I don't think it matters. I think even, even if it doesn't go down in 2025, uh, this is still has the same impact. This just makes it worse. So, if you haven't taken action yet, now's the time. Here's some suggestions. If you have a senator that's from the Republican Party, they're the ones that are going to make this decision. Uh, and so it is really important to, pre to press upon them both with volume frequency and with the intensity of the stories that you tell uh, in letters to the editor and reaching out to their office in all sorts of ways. If you're in a situation where you have two Democratic senators but a Republican governor, Republican governors are incredibly influential here, and impressing upon the Republican governor how much this will hurt the state, uh, I think is important. And then finally, if you're in a situation that is where you have two Democratic senators and a Democratic governor, um, you're not powerless either. I think it's important to continue to press upon your senator uh, the importance of making sure that over the next week, every piece of business that comes up. And until this is resolved beyond this week, every piece of business that comes up, 
your senator is bringing up the point that millions and millions of people are going to be losing health coverage, and they need to hear it from you. Got that? Get to it. I promise you there was one more bit of news about the Russia investigation. Do you remember when Jim Comey said Trump told him to lay off Flynn? And Trump was like, you better hope I don't have tapes. And Comey was all, Lordy, I hope you do. And Trump was all, well, maybe I do. And the press was like, well, do you? And Trump was like, maybe. And the press was all, come on, though, do you? And Trump was like, I'll tell you later. And everyone was like, I don't think he has any tapes. And Trump was like, you don't know. And we were all like, I think we know. And Trump was like, nuh-uh. And we were all, uh-huh. And Sean Spicer was all, he'll tell you Friday. And we were all rolling our eyes. Anyway, he told us Thursday. Yeah, there are no tapes. Obviously, there were no tapes. Empty threats are this president's specialty. And if there ever were any tapes, I'm sure they've been long since shredded. That's it for another beautiful week with the man with the brains of your cat's scratching post as our president. Thanks to Andy Slavitt for coming back on the podcast to talk about the American Healthcare is So Bad We're Gonna Take It Away Act. I also want to thank everyone who has signed up as a patron in the past few weeks, especially Michael Ferguson and James Fry. If you like listening to the podcast every week and find it helps you win arguments with your uncle on Facebook who has a Make America Great Again hat as his profile picture, throw in a few bucks per episode. It's how I know you love me. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Trump scorecard. Don't forget, you can find links to all the stories I've talked about on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. Send me an email at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. Like the podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And slide into my mentions on Twitter at Jesse Burney. I love hearing what you think about the podcast, unless you think bad things. Uh, a Trump voter or a Hillary voter or a Bernie bro or Marco Rubio supporter or a Jeb Bush supporter, whoever you are. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Bernie. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.